Warrior Woman, welcome back to the Warrior School Podcast. This is episode 216. Hi, how are ya? I have a guest for you today. That's right, I have a hot guest in the hot seat to talk about some hot topics. We're talking about natural birth control natural conception, and the symptothermal method. Did you know that your fertility window can be up to six to nine days long? Yeah, that's right. Not just 24 hours or 48 hours uh, at ovulation. It can actually be up to three, six, even nine days long. Doesn't that blow your mind? And did you know that you can actually take control of your fertility, your contraception, your conception by tracking some key biomarkers by not being on hormonal birth control? Did you know? Well, my guest today is Jesse, aka also known as fertility charting in the social media world. Jesse, she well, she's a Kiwi, but she lives in Australia. She lives on the Gold Coast. So she's kind of got this cool funky Kiwi Australian accent thing going on, uh, which is super cool. I've been following Jessie's work for a number of years and I love it. I love her. Uh, I love her work. I love her message, her passion, her enthusiasm. Uh, I just love everything that she does. So I reached out to her and I'm like, Jessie, you got to come on the podcast I've got some hot questions that I want to talk to you about. So Jessie, she's a certified symptothermal method instructor. And we're going to talk all about that today. What is it? Why is it so cool? How it can be really helpful and really build this connection with our bodies. And she's also, she combines this passion that she has And her work, this is what she does for her work, for natural birth control, natural conception, and this symptothermal method with uh, this creative flair that she has. She's actually a really creative person. We talk a little bit about this in the podcast. Uh, This symptothermal method is very sciencey, and she loves the science behind fertility, conception, uh, and the menstrual cycle, but she's actually very creative. So what she did was that she created and developed fertility charting journals. And it was one of the first high-quality, hard-backed A4 journals designed specifically for women or users of fertility awareness-based methods, also known as FABMs, uh, to chart their menstrual cycles. So actually, if you watch some of the video clips behind her, she's got these illustrations that she drew and she drew everything uh, in 
this fertility charting journal. She's also created uh, graphics and designs to go on, you know, bags and cups, which is super cool. Jessie really spends her life, uh, well, now raising a little human that she had not long ago and working with people from all around the world to help teach them and educate them about their menstrual cycle, about their bodies. She really does this in this this comprehensive, evidence-based, passionate way. Uh, She's created so many free resources and she gives out so much cool information uh, through her social media platform all around the menstrual cycle. She really helps demystify a lot of the myths out there around natural birth control, natural conception, and fertility awareness-based methods. She can really help support you in many seasons of your life. So whether you are trying to conceive, you're trying to avoid pregnancy, or you're interested in really using uh, this symptothermal method to track your hormonal health, she's your gal. She's your girl. I highly recommend you go out, uh, go and check out a lot of her free resources uh, and education. It was such a cool conversation. Uh, Jesse and I, we were, sit, we were sleep deprived. I had just flown in from Nashville and only, <laughs> only had five hours of sleep. She had a broken night with her little human. So she was running on five hours of sleep. So we pulled off a pretty rad podcast conversation. Uh, it was very enjoyable, very fun, very informative. Uh, on five hours of sleep, total of 10 hours. We're so rad. Uh, okay, so I hope you enjoy. Actually, not I hope, I know. I know you are gonna enjoy this conversation all about hormones, the menstrual cycle, natural birth control, natural conception, and the symptothermal method with Jessie. Okay, well, we don't get a Zoom voice. She doesn't say recording in progress, but I'll say recording in progress. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. You did that really well. I mean, who needs a Zoom voice when we've got your voice? Yeah, I've heard it many, many times. Uh, Jessie, welcome to the Warrior School podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a privilege and an honor to be able to have a chat and yeah. You're sleep deprived. I'm sleep deprived. I'm not sleep deprived because of a little human. I'm sleep deprived because of a delayed flight back from Nashville. Mm. Uh, so I only got five hours. How many did you get last night? <laughs> probably, probably similar, I would say. Probably similar. <laughs> Look, we're, we're doing well. The fact that we're here and we're talking, I'm proud of us. I'm proud of us. Yeah. Well, it's 4 p.m. for me here in the afternoon, but it's early in the morning for you. But you're going to listen to this and just know that Jesse and I have only had five hours of sleep. All right. <laughs> we're doing our best. We're, we're functioning um, at the extremes of human endurance right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really like that term. Functioning at the extremes of human endurance. let's claim it I'm I'm claiming that (laughs) you should claim that yes because I'm sure that 
you function there quite often since the birth of your little human into the world. Mm, yes. Although, you know, I don't even know if functioning is the right word. <laughs> Surviving? <laughs> uh. Oh, I'm so excited to have you on. It's been a long time coming. Uh, I have been following you and your work for quite a long time. And then you had a little hiatus as you birthed a little human into the world, but you're back. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And today we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about you, about your work, about hormones and cycles and tracking and lots of stuff. The place that I'd love to start is a little bit with your story. So what you do now. And then I have this thing with going back and connecting the dots that kind mm. of like there's some big dots that happen in our lives that bring us to the work that we do mm. today. So I want to connect some of your dots. Does that sound cool to you? Sounds great. It sounds awesome. I love that concept. Okay. Do you want to kick it off? What do you do? Yeah. And then tell me about your dots. All right, let's go. So uh, so my name is Jessie, Jessie Brebner, and I'm a symptothermal method instructor. So that means that I teach people um, essentially about the menstrual cycle and how to uh, learn the language of their own body, their own menstrual cycle so that they can identify uh, days that they are most fertile and least fertile, so that they can basically harness the power of their own natural fertility rhythms to either achieve a pregnancy or prevent a pregnancy or even just simply to monitor their hormonal health. And all of those three things are so powerful and can be relevant for the same person across different phases of their reproductive life cycle. So it's such a, a powerful tool to have in your toolbox. Um, and the way that I do that is by teaching something called the symptothermal method. So there are lots of different names for this. So you might be familiar with the fertility awareness method or FAM um, or natural family planning. There's lots of different, uh, I guess, colloquialisms for it. But essentially, it's it's uh, tracking cervical mucus and basal body temperatures and then uh, charting our observations and applying some really specific rules to interpret our charts to know when we are safe or unsafe uh, for unprotected sex if we're using it for birth control. Um, so that's what I do. Uh, and it, I've been doing this for about seven years now and it just remains something that I am so deeply passionate about and part of that is because I had no idea that this existed when I was you know in my teens all through my early and mid-20s so I didn't even I didn't have any clue about the concept of the fact that our fertility is not constant we're not fertile 24 7 I just didn't realized that until I was about 26 years old. Um, and so that's one reason why I'm so passionate about talking about this, because I think back to how I felt as a 26 year old, desperate to come off the pill, desperate for some kind of solution, going to my GP and being told your only options are either hormonal contraception, or if you don't want hormones, you can get a copper IUD. And if you don't want that, then you've got to use condoms for the rest of your life if you if you want to prevent a pregnancy. And 
just the sense of hopelessness and like that feeling of being stuck between a rock and a hard place really I think back to how that felt and it was just awful and that propels me to tell as many people as I can that they have options you know maybe your GP hasn't told you that something called the symptothermal method exists and I'm here to tell you that it does so that's I guess one of the dots that's probably the most important one to share yeah and how long ago was this was this you were around 26 you said yeah so I'm 34 now um I'm terrible with math someone else do the math it's about seven <laughs> or so years ago 27 28 29 31 32 33. oh we're up to eight we're up to about eight years ago <laughs> I do this as well yeah. I would have I would count it on my yeah on my yeah. hands I, I'm a I'm finger a math, math person yeah. mm. especially on five hours of sleep a night yeah especially thank you yeah yeah okay so this is about eight years ago mm. when <clears throat> you yeah can you go a little bit deeper into that story like prior to mm. that uh you just said that you had really no idea about fertility did you have any idea about your menstrual cycle about hormones like when wow. what was kind of the shifting point for you in your mid-20s like why did mm. you even want to yeah. come off it why so, did you question it so oh how how far back to go I I did not have great access to um sex and health education growing up so I actually grew up in quite a religious family um, so I didn't have quite the same access that perhaps some of my peers were having to this kind of education so whereas perhaps some people did go through their teens and early 20s knowing a little bit more about the menstrual cycle I feel as though for me you know I'd had access to books and, and reading things but I don't know whether a I didn't absorb much of it maybe I just wasn't interested um, but I know that I did have slightly less access than some of my peers in that regard but I think as well in our society the menstrual cycle is just it's not centered as part of our experience living in our bodies and so it was just not even on my radar the fact that I had a monthly hormonal rhythm um, I actually noticed types of cervical mucus and I never thought anything of it. I, looking back, I remember seeing what appeared to be egg white cervical mucus when I would wipe after using the bathroom and just thought absolutely nothing of it. Just, it just never, it, it just floated through my brain and I didn't even think, what does this mean? I, it just, just not something, I was just so disconnected from that part of myself um, and basically the reason that really prompted me to start looking into all of this is that I did not do well being on the pill. Um, and so I had been on the pill for about nine or 10 months, um, at the point that I decided to come off it. So I hadn't been on it for long, but I was suffering from something called melasma, which is a hormonal condition of the skin. So it's those synthetic estrogens. It's actually common in pregnancy as well when our estrogen levels are really high, um, but it was really impacting my skin. So I had all these dark blotches all over my skin. Um, and I also uh, basically, I, I'm quite an emotional person and I just felt like my emotions flatlined on the pill. I didn't feel like myself anymore. So I felt just 
I described it to people as though I was I was living in a cloud, just kind of floating through life. And I didn't have the intensity of joyful emotion, but I also didn't have the intensity of sad emotions. I just was kind of in the middle somewhere. And that was feeling increasingly uh, wrong to me. That didn't, that was not me. And I felt disconnected from my emotions and myself. And on top of that, <clears throat> I actually experienced a, a couple of panic attacks for the first time ever on the pill, which was very scary. Like I remember sitting in bed and I was just browsing on my laptop. Nothing was wrong. And I just had this sudden impending feeling of doom, <laughs> like wash over me. And that's like what a panic attack is. And looking back, I know so much more about hormones and about how important progesterone is for our mental health and anxiety and that sort of thing. And when you're on the pill, you stop ovulating and you stop having access to your own endogenous progesterone. And I can look back and see so many of the ways that the pill was creating these new, uncomfortable, unwanted experiences and side effects. But at the time, I just knew every time I picked up that packet and I popped out a pill and I put it in my mouth, I my instinct, my gut feeling said, I don't want to be doing this. And I, I, I do think I am connected to my body and I listened to that. And I did wake up one morning and I looked at that pill packet and I just couldn't do it. And I threw it in the bin. And that's from there that, you know, everything changed. Yeah. Can you talk about how it changed? Like mm. from the moment that you threw that away, what now? Yeah. <laughs> so I, <clears throat> I was feeling actually quite fired up at the time and I threw that pill packet in the bin and I thought, screw it. Sam can sort it. He can do something. Like, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. My partner, Sam, who I'm still with today, I thought, screw him. He can sort something out. Like, I'm done. I'm not messing up my life and my hormones for him. Like, it's I'm not doing this. And <clears throat> thankfully, there are two things. So thankfully, number one, we were actually in a long-distance relationship at the time. So it wasn't as though it had an immediate impact on our contraceptive needs because we weren't seeing each other really frequently number two just so serendipitously that week i spoke with a friend of mine we were in a car heading to our work christmas party and we were chatting about life and i said yeah i'm just like throwing my my pill packet in the bed i'm not doing it anymore and she said oh well have you looked into the symptothermal method and i said well what what is what is that um and actually, no, I didn't say what is that because I already had a, a vague understanding of what it might be. And I'll go back to that soon. But it was just hearing from someone that was already using it and successfully that made me think, oh, okay, like maybe this isn't just hogwash. Maybe it, maybe it is actually something I can look into. So probably about maybe... 11 months before that so before i went on the pill i had been researching natural birth control on the internet and back then there, honestly there wasn't a lot on the internet when it comes to uh, fertility awareness-based methods or the symptothermal method and i came across one of the only websites in australia for the symptothermal method and it was a catholic website and it was very uh heavy on the catholic um doctrine all that sort of thing i come from a religious background but i don't i'm not a religious person any longer in my life and so i felt quite skeptical of of whether this was uh 
a valid, scientifically proven, safe, effective method to use, or whether it was like some kind of religious indoctrination. And, and that I take full responsibility for my own internal biases impacting me in that moment, because I read that website and I decided ultimately that I couldn't trust the information because it came from a religious source. And that's my own, my own bias. And, you know, if I had taken the time to really do more research, instead of writing that off, I would have found that actually the superthermal method is safe and effective and it is backed by clinical uh, studies and research. But at the time, I just, I wrote it off. Um, and so, yeah, it took me hearing from someone else, one of my own peers who was using the method to have more confidence that, okay, this is something that's working for people like me, people who aren't religious, um, and maybe it's something I can look into. Yeah, and I want to talk all about what it is and and the and and every I have so much I want to talk about with you but <laughs> I myself I'm just so fascinated on the discovery of it and your journey into it and so from that moment in the car I'd love for you to talk me through discovering that learning about it how how you started it, how did you feel, what were kind of the the thoughts, the mindset stuff around it. And then if you don't mind sharing, I'd love to hear the conversation that you had with Sam. It's Sam, isn't it? Your partner. Mm, yeah. yeah. I'd love to hear one of the maybe initial conversations around you deciding that you didn't want to take um, the pill or oral contraception and you wanted to try this, what was that like for your relationship? Would those be okay things to, to mm, talk about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I feel very, very lucky in that my partner, Sam, is so deeply uh, and incredibly trusting of my own discernment and my own decisions and he's always respected that it's my body and I can do whatever I want with it. So it was never the kind of conversation where I had to convince him that we needed to try something. It was a conversation where I said, this is what I'm going to do <laughs> and it's up to you what you want to do. So, you know, if a partner is not comfortable with you um, deciding to use the symptothermal method, then it's up to them to take extra precautions. So if they want to use condoms at every single sexual encounter, then that's totally up to them. And my partner, Sam, was very, very open and trusting and said, I trust you. Like, I know um, you're relatively intelligent and you're going to be doing the right research. And I trust you to, <laughs> to, to take us wherever we need to go. And um, in saying that, my partner, Sam, at the time, and still to this day is relatively open to potential pregnancy. He does. That's not something that's like a really hard no for him. Like we have one child now um, and he loves being a father and it's, we've got, we're very lucky in that it's not a huge um, concern, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I was very lucky that I have a supportive, beautiful partner who was basically cheerleading me on. Um, but yeah, it's a big adjustment. It's a big learning curve. So part of the symptothermal method is taking your temperature every morning when you wake up. And the first cycle that I did that, I was so, my brain was so preoccupied with this whole new strange concept that I almost 
couldn't sleep at night because I was so excited to see what my temperature was going to be the next morning when I woke up. And it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like the more you think about it, the slower it seems to go. And I remember like waiting to see a temperature shift around ovulation because I was like, does this method work? Is this, am I going to see this? And I eventually did see it, <clears throat> but it felt as though it took like 10 years to, to see that, that shift, even though it was like a standard normal menstrual cycle, but I was just so excited to see what happened. Um, but but yeah, in terms of the the whole process, I so I originally learned by getting a book called Taking Charge of Your Fertility by Tony Weschler. It's a very popular book. Um, it was actually difficult to learn from though because it uh, it's all in Fahrenheit, and here in Australia we use Celsius, and so I was looking through this book, trying to do like conversions, like in the margins, trying to figure out like what each rule would convert to in celsius and it's actually a really large book and a lot of the information and the rules are scattered all throughout the book so it was actually quite a steep and difficult learning curve um mm. so I, I did do that for maybe maybe a year or so maybe even less than a year i was using that book and then I heard of SensiPlan, which is a Celsius method, and it's one of the more highly researched methods. It's also slightly uh, safer than the method outlined in the Taking Charge of Your Fertility book because it implements something called calculation rules to double check the opening of the fertile window. And I decided to give that one a go. Um, and at that time, you couldn't even buy the SensiPlan book in Australia or anywhere, unless I think you're in Europe or Germany. So I found a PDF of it in an online Facebook group. And I relied on that for maybe like a year or so, I, maybe even less than a year. This is probably about six months. Um, and that was much clearer and much easier for me to use as it was all in Celsius. And it was a much clearer, uh, simpler outline of the rules. <clears throat> Excuse me. And from then, I at that point, I was so just fascinated by the method that I wanted to tell everyone about it. But I said, I'd said to myself, look, I'm going to use this for a full 12 menstrual cycles or around a year before I tell anyone because I don't know, you know, does this even work? I, I'm going to put it to the test. And so I used it for a year. <clears throat> and then by the end of that year, I was just, I was sold. It worked. It changed my entire life. I was safely off hormonal contraception and preventing pregnancy. Um, and I wanted everyone to know. So I actually reached out to um, a, a news, like a, a woman's news website here in Australia called Mamma Mia. And I pitched to them like a story. I reached out to other people that charted their cycles and I interviewed them and did a, a big um like a big article for their news website. And I told everyone that I could think of. I, I just I, I just knew that there were other people like me who were struggling with hormonal contraception and didn't know that the symptothermal method existed. Nobody had ever told them. So I wanted to make sure that I did what I could to pass on some of the goodness and let other people know um, that it existed. And so from then, I ended up developing... Um, one of the first paper charting journals. So I really liked charting on paper and I decided to make a journal. Turned out other people would like journals too. So I ended up uh, basically designing those, 
having them manufactured and distributed and, and sold. But then I decided, actually, I would like to train to teach other people. And so I went on to study with the Natural Family Planning Teachers Association. That's an organization over in the United Kingdom. So I studied with them. Um, and that took probably about two years between when I started and when I graduated. Um, so I graduated in 2019, I think it was. And yeah, and then started teaching other people. And a big part of what I do has always been that grassroots awareness raising level, because I feel as though, yes, it's great to get in a one on one consult with someone over Zoom and go through all this wonderful info. But on a on a wider level, I, I guess it's like a wider public health level, people don't know this option exists. And so that's where I spend a lot of time on my social media, um, just trying to spread the word and let people know that this is an option because for such a long time, um, people haven't known that it's an option. And not only that, but there's a lot of misinformation about the symptothermal methods. So there's a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of myth floating around that really muddies the waters for people. So I just try to clear that up with what I do as well. So hopefully that gives you a bit of a, an overview there. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing uh, uh, pieces of your story around that, Jesse, to you know bring us to the work that you do today. And I'd love to know, like, what is it? Let's talk about it. What is yeah. it? Uh, let's dive into like the depths or the roots of it. And then maybe we can move and transition into some of the, the myths or the muddying of the water around it. Does that sound mm. cool to you? Sounds great. Sounds so good. Um, so what is the symptothermal method? So this is where we get to the meat, <laughs> the meat and potatoes, the juicy parts. <laughs> um, so essentially to talk about what it is, it's a way of monitoring our body's fertility biomarkers throughout our menstrual cycle so that we can know when we're fertile and when we're not fertile. And then we can do whatever we want with that information. So whether you're trying to uh, achieve a pregnancy or whether you're trying to avoid a pregnancy. But basically what it comes back to is that when we're talking about reproduction, um, if you're someone who has a menstrual cycle, you are ovulating once per menstrual cycle. And at ovulation, we release an egg or maybe two or three eggs, perhaps in the case of fraternal twins or triplets, but we only ovulate once per menstrual cycle. And the eggs that we release have a maximum fertilizable lifespan of up to 24 hours. So that means that the absolute maximum that you could have um, an egg awaiting fertilization in your body is about 24 to 48 hours each menstrual cycle. Just say you uh, release two eggs, it would be about 48 hours. Um, but that's the only time that uh, you on your own are fertile. Now, if you're in a partnership with someone who is producing sperm, then you've got to take that into consideration because sperm, once they get into our bodies, can actually survive for up to five to seven days in the reproductive tract. So what that means is that combined, we've got a fertile window of about six to nine days every menstrual cycle. So we're not fertile 24-7. We've just got this one small window of fertility each menstrual cycle. Now, it might sound as though, well, you know, how do we know when, when that window is? And this is where the symptothermal method comes in, because what we're doing is we learn to read the signs of our bodies to know when we are approaching that window 
and when we have passed that window. Now, it's really important to clarify that when I say approaching the window and passing the window, that's exactly what I mean. So we can't identify that exact six to nine day biological fertile window um, because we don't know in advance exactly which day ovulation will occur and we'd have to work backwards. So we can't do that. But by tracking our cervical mucus and our basal body temperatures, we know when we are getting close to that uh, biological fertile window and we know when we've passed it. So let's we, let's rewind a little bit and talk about that. So basically we have two phases of our menstrual cycle. So we've got the follicular phase, which is the start of your period leading up until ovulation. That's the follicular phase. And that during that phase, we've got follicles in our ovaries and they're growing larger in the lead up to ovulation. And eventually one of those follicles uh, becomes dominant and it's going to release an egg at ovulation. Now, as those follicles are growing, they produce estrogen. So estrogen is the dominant hormone of the follicular phase. Now, after we've ovulated, we go into a different phase and that's called the luteal phase. So the luteal phase is like a fixed length. It's usually approximately two weeks in length and it lasts from ovulation, the day after ovulation, up until the day before your next period starts. Now, during the luteal phase, our dominant hormone is not estrogen, it's progesterone. And we produce progesterone out of the like the remnants of the follicle that our egg emerged from. It actually gets transformed into a temporary endocrine structure called the corpus luteum. Um, and that's pumping out this beautiful hormone progesterone, which is a progestational hormone. It's really a, uh, necessary for implantation and pregnancy. So we've got these two phases. We've got the follicular phase um, up until ovulation, and then we've got the luteal phase, which is ovulation to your next period. Now, in the follicular phase, when estrogen is dominant, that basically, that estrogen circulating in the bloodstream, it arrives to our cervix. Now, our cervix is the bottom third of our uterus, and it has receptors to pick up on estrogen. And when estrogen arrives at the cervix, it triggers our cervix to start making cervical mucus. So, there are lots of different types of cervical mucus, but I'll keep this as simple as possible. But basically, um, you might start basically, we'll, we'll go back to menstruation. So you'll you'll have your menstruation, your, your period. After your period ends, most people have a few dry days, maybe one or two dry days before those follicles start growing and they start producing estrogen. And that estrogen triggers the cervix and we might see some sticky cervical mucus. We might see some uh, tacky, gummy cervical mucus. And as estrogen levels get higher, that water content of our cervical mucus increases. So it might become a little bit more creamy or milky or lotiony. And then as that follicle becomes more and more dominant and larger in the lead up to ovulation, we've got higher and higher levels of estrogen and our cervical mucus starts to get um, a lot more watery, a lot more stretchy. It starts causing a really wet or a slippery feeling at our vulva as we're walking around throughout the day. And it starts for some people looking like raw egg whites. So it's clear, slippery, stretchy. Now, as we uh, ovulate and pass through into the luteal phase, we experience a sudden drop in estrogen and a rise in progesterone. And progesterone triggers our cervix to produce what's, uh, it's known as like a, a progestogenic mucus plug and it blocks the cervix. And that's to protect our uterus just in case we do get pregnant. Now that uh, plug of mucus blocking the cervix usually means that our cervical mucus quickly dries up. So before it was really wet 
and copious and stretchy um, and slippery, suddenly that dries up. And for the next two weeks, up until our next period, we're usually much drier. Um, you might see a little bit of sticky or tacky mucus, but for most people, it's quite a dry time due to the progesterone being dominant. Um, now, that progesterone in the luteal phase, it also has what's called a thermogenic effect on the body. So it basically ramps up our metabolism and our core body temperature rises only by a little bit. So we need a special thermometer to pick up on that. But when we combine both our cervical mucus observations and our basal body temperature observations, we can see when we are getting close to that fertile window and when we've passed it. So that's a really rough overview. Um, and it sounds so complex, but in real life, it's so simple because it's literally just taking your temperature when you wake up and checking for cervical mucus throughout the day um, and just tuning into the sensation at your vulva throughout the day as well. So it's in, in reality, a very, very simple practice. Um, the, the science behind it, which so fascinates me, is so complex and wonderful, but I don't I have to be careful not to overwhelm people because you don't need to know all of that science to practice the method, if that makes sense. But I do like talking about it because it gives people some context for why this method works in the first place. Do you want to touch on it a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> when we think about, I guess, the science of it, the science of it comes down to, uh, in I guess, the, the, most, the largest part of it is the interaction between cervical mucus and sperm. So our cervix is designed as basically a biological valve. So it's going to open up and be more hospitable to sperm around the time of ovulation, because that's when our bodies want sperm to come into the body and survive uh, from an evolutionary perspective. Um, and when ovulation is passed, that cervix is closing up, the cervical mucus is drying up, so that sperm uh, don't survive. <clears throat> and the fascinating thing is that uh, Without cervical mucus, sperm actually die very quickly. So within minutes to hours, once they're within our reproductive tract. And that is uh, in large part due to the acidity of our vaginas. So our vaginas are much more acidic uh, than semen, which is quite an alkaline substance. So we really need the presence of cervical mucus, which is a beautiful alkaline substance to provide like a safe haven. So when sperm enter the vagina, they can quickly enter into the cervical mucus in the cervix to escape that inhospitable acidic environment of the vagina. And not only that, but as we get closer to ovulation, the basically the, the structure of our cervical mucus changes. So that water content increases. And what it means is that the gaps between each little mucus filament, so cervical mucus is made up of a lot of things, but one of the big things is mucus filaments. The gaps between each mucus filament grow larger so that sperm can actually swim through them. So it's very difficult for sperm to, to swim through uh, the, the mucus created by the uh, progesterone, the progestogenic mucus in the, the cervix. So we really want estrogen present to create mucus that has larger gaps for sperm to swim through. So that's probably one of the big, uh, the big things of the method is that when we ovulate, we are producing cervical mucus and cervical mucus is inherently uh, designed to assist in sperm survival. And not only the, not only the, uh, the alkalinity of cervical secretions, but also the fact that they're quite high in fructose, which is a, an energy source for sperm and it provides them with mm. energy on their journey. 
there's so much that goes into it but I hope that gives people a little glimpse into um, the behind the scenes of what your body's doing every menstrual cycle. It's so cool, isn't it? Mm. It's fascinating. Yeah. I'd love to know, so you mentioned this, it can be up to nine days that, and I think a, I, I think a lot of people don't know this. Mm. don't know so we have this window and for us it's around that ovulation so it could be 24 hours could be up to 48 hours mm. how does it stretch out over this nine days or what are we what are we doing so we we could potentially be fertile over a nine-day period because of um our male partner or the sperm could you just explain that or clarify like because that you know, when I first heard that, it blew my mind because I didn't, I had no idea. I thought, yep, okay, it's on the, it's on the female, we have this window and then that was it. But it, for it to be bigger, what does, mm. could you go a little bit deeper into that? Like how do we <laughs> yes. know that? How do we navigate that? What does that mean for our fertility? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. This is such a good question. Oh, this is such a good question. So a lot of the time, if you are on social media or Instagram, you you will see people say that you only got a really small window of a couple of days of fertility each cycle. And it's simply not true um, because when we're talking about reproduction, we're talking about sperm and an egg. Now, the egg that we release, let, let's talk about the six day. We'll start with six days because technically it's about six to nine days. Let's talk about six days. So this is the nice basic way of explaining it. So we've got one day, 24 hours for the lifespan of that egg that we release. And then we've got five days leading up to that, which is the lifespan of sperm. So you could have sex, unprotected sex, five days before ovulation. And if a sperm survives five days and then it meets the egg when it's released. So sperm don't die straight away once they're in the reproductive system. They tend to migrate into the cervix and also up into the fallopian tubes where they're waiting for that egg to be released. And they can wait there for up to five to seven days. So that's where this extended time frame comes from. Um, so I, I hope that explains a little bit. The nine days is if you've got sperm that survives seven days plus you release possibly uh, two eggs. So um, that would uh, extend it out to about 48 hours because basically you can only, there's only a 24 hour window of ovulation. So during that 24 hours, you can release one or more eggs. So if you release one egg at the start of that 24 hours and then another egg at the end of that 24 hours, that second egg lives for 24 hours and that takes it to 48 hours. So if that makes sense, it's like six to nine days, but keep in mind that that's, um that's at the outer limits of sperm survival and it's quite rare for sperm to be surviving seven days it's more common so the average sperm survival is closer to around three days but it is still possible for them to survive five to seven days so really at the end of the day we've got about a six to nine day fertile window which is a lot longer than a lot of people realize and when, we, um, when we're using the symptothermal method, keep in mind, we cannot identify those exact six to nine days because that would rely on us knowing exactly when we ovulate. And it's not possible to do that unless you're having really uh, well-timed 
uh, internal vaginal ultrasounds every single day and you can pinpoint the day of ovulation. Um, so instead, the symptothermal method actually is uh, identifying when we are getting close to where we're, we're approaching that biological fertile window and when we've passed it. And that means that we actually always have a buffer of several days on either side of that biological fertile window. So it's not as though, you know, I see, I see people on social media sometimes saying you're only fertile for six days, every menstrual cycle, and that's it. That's all you have to abstain or use condoms. But the thing is that we cannot identify those six days. Um, and it's always when we use the symptothermal method, a buffer on either side. Um, and so usually if we're using the symptothermal method um, for people with like a standard 28 day menstrual cycle, for example, they might be seeing around 11 or 12 days of abstinence in the middle of the cycle around the time of ovulation. But again, those days of abstinence or alternative barrier method use like condoms, we're not... Um, we're not identifying those days by counting days on a calendar or anything like that. We are looking at our cervical secretions, our cervical mucus and our basal body temperatures. And that's what's giving us that information. So it's an absolute science. It's not a guessing game. Yeah. So how does someone know when they're approaching that, you know, that window that potentially they abstain or they use something like condoms, uh, how, how do we know? What are we looking for? Yeah. So different fertility awareness-based methods have different rules. So before I begin, I will say that if you are requiring pregnancy prevention, it's so important that you purchase a method manual and actually read the rules. So don't rely on what I'm saying here um, because I don't, I can't go into all the nuance and all the in-depth because this, there's a lot to this. Um, at a very basic level though, what we're looking for is the first signs of uh, any sensation at the vulva that is not dry. So any even a moist sensation as we're moving around throughout the day or the presence of any uh, cervical mucus, whether that's sticky or tacky or whether you go straight into, say, egg white cervical mucus. But basically, after our period ends, often we'll have a day or two of dryness and then we'll notice what's called a point of change where suddenly our ovaries are awakening they're starting to grow some follicles and that's causing estrogen levels in our bodies to rise from baseline and it triggers the cervix to start producing more cervical mucus and more moisture. And so what we're looking for is that very first point of change that indicates to us that our ovaries have awakened from their state of resting after the, the period menstruation ends. And if, you, um, if you're using a symptothermal method, the there are different types of symptothermal methods. The, the type that I teach actually double checks those observations against what are known as calculation rules. So we look at our previous cycles and we do some calculations to basically come up with a cutoff date. So we, we say whatever happens first, whether it's the calculation rule cutoff date or you seeing cervical mucus, that's opening the fertile window. And the reason we do that is to basically increase the safety of the method so that we're always double checking what we're doing. Um, so just say, for instance, you have a cycle where for some reason you're not producing quite as much cervical mucus as you usually do, you might miss that point of change. But we have that calculation rule as a backup to make sure that we're never just waltzing on into that fertile window unprepared. We know to stop, hang on, we are approaching the fertile window. So hopefully that is <laughs> clear. 
Yeah. Um, in your previous life or before you did this work, were, were you in the science field? No, no. And the funny thing is that I, I love like art and painting and creativity and the science side of it is actually not my, my uh, it's, it's not my forte. Like I, you know, um, but it's also simultaneously incredibly fascinating to me. So yeah, I, I, I talk like a bit of a science nerd about it because it just, it, it will never stop blowing my mind. And honestly, the more you look into it, the more you research, the deeper you go, the more you find and the more you realize you don't know. So, you know, we explain, I, m- myself and most other fertility awareness instructors, we try to explain things simply. We, we don't want to overcomplicate things. But if you want to go deeper, there's so much to dive into and it's just fascinating. Yeah, that's that's super interesting, Jesse, that... Do you do you have um, balance in your life? Is there like do you do a lot of career? I know that you design some stuff with your work and when you've done your manuals and your cups and stuff. Did you do the designs for that? Do you still yeah. do a lot of yeah? Yeah, yeah. Now to your question, do I have balance in my life? No, I do <laughs> I do not have balance in my life. Um that is, you know, I guess being a mum and also trying to run a business, there's it's tough to have balance, but I do try and incorporate things that I love into my work. And so, for instance, I don't know, if it, will there be a video on this podcast or is it just, um, is it audio only? No, I will put, yeah, I will have sections of it being a video. Okay, so, we'll yeah. see. So the, the poster behind me, where are my hands? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of beautiful creative work that I get to do. So I have... Um, a course handbook, for instance, where I've illustrated the vast majority of the diagrams. I have beautiful tote bags and mugs and stickers because I I want people to be able to walk into the world of fertility awareness and look around and see that their choices are legitimized because there's merchandise. You can go and buy mugs and tote bags and stickers because charging is a thing. There are so many people out there charting their cycles who freaking love the fact that they're ovulating and want to tell everyone about it. I literally drive around in my car with a sign, a sticker on the back window saying cervical mucus is my ride or die (laughs) because I just, I just want to normalize it. Like let's normalize having a menstrual cycle, ovulating and being freaking excited about it. So yeah, that. To conclude, there is no balance in my life. I'm obsessed about fertility awareness. Oh, I meant um, the balance between, I guess, the science tracking and then the artistic side of it. So you did answer it. You bring, you tried to bring in the creative artistic mm. side into your work, into your business. Um, yeah, yes. I try. But no, I know that your your big roles are being a mom and then sharing your knowledge in this world um and I think it's fine to be obsessed with things I think Hmm. it's actually I think it's it's good it's important especially with stuff like this um okay so let's look at um what muddies the water what muddied muddies muddies Mm. makes the water muddy (laughs) um (laughs) 
what like what are some things that you hear or see or even through your work what do you um let's bust some myths around this yeah I don't even know where to begin there are so many myths um I think one of the biggest myths that is so pervasive even within healthcare settings is that there is a lot of misconceptions or confusion where people, including healthcare providers, believe that the symptothermal method is the same as or very similar to the rhythm method. So for anyone who's not familiar, the rhythm method is, uh, it's very old. It was originally created in the 1930s and it involves tracking days um, on a calendar. And it, it basically, you basically are predicting days that you will be fertile in your current cycle based on your previous cycles. There are no fertility biomarkers involved. It's literally just counting days on a calendar. Um, look, it's not a terrible method for people who have perfectly regular cycles, but that's not the majority of people. So most people have some level of variation in the lengths of their menstrual cycles, which means that the rhythm method is really not that effective. Um, and unfortunately, you can go to your healthcare provider and say, look, I want to use the symptothermal method, or if you say fertility awareness method or FAM, and a lot of healthcare providers assume that you mean the rhythm method. They also will assume that you mean using an app um, to use the rhythm method, because it's like there's plenty of apps that are like period prediction apps, and they literally are using the rhythm method to tell you uh, when you might be ovulating and when you might be bleeding. Um, and that is a massive misconception. So that, yeah, that's one of the big things because the main difference between the two is that the symptothermal method is not relying on predictions about your past cycles to tell you when you are fertile in your current cycle. The main method of identifying fertile days is by um, observing and charting our fertility biomarkers, which are our cervical mucus and our basal body temperatures. And those are highly correlated. So we have a, a mass of studies into our cervical mucus and basal body temperature and how they correlate with the event of ovulation. Uh, not only that, but how they provide uh, contraceptive effectiveness. So, yeah, there's that's a big that's a big one, and it's frustrating as a symptothermal method educator to come up against that because you can say, you know, I teach the symptothermal method, and and people are like why would you bother doing that? You know, that's, you're putting people at risk because you're, you know, you're teaching the rhythm method and it's just not the case. That's one of the big ones. Another one that I would like to address is that a lot of healthcare providers and even a lot of official healthcare websites will say that the symptothermal method is only useful if you have uh, perfectly regular cycles. Now that is an extension of the same myth because it's assuming that the symptothermal method is like the rhythm method and you do need very regular cycles to use the rhythm method. But the symptothermal method, it doesn't matter whether this cycle you have a 30-day cycle and the last cycle you had a 65-day PCOS cycle. It doesn't matter because we're not, we're not uh, counting days of your previous cycles and, and making calculations and, and counting things on a calendar. We're literally looking at your cervical mucus and your basal body temperatures. Um, so that's a big one. You do not need a perfectly regular cycle to use the symptothermal method. 
I do say that once you've got cycles that are consistently over, say, like 50 days or so, it may become more convenient for you to look into an alternative type of fertility awareness-based method because there are lots of different types of FABMs. Um, and because our basal body temperature only shows a sustained rise after we've ovulated, if you're going for really long periods of time without ovulating, basal body temperature becomes less and less useful for you because it, it doesn't hold any predictive value. It's not telling you when you get close to ovulation. That's what mm -hmm. cervical mucus is for. So when you've got really, really long cycles consistently, um, that's when you might be better served by a cervical mucus only method or a symptohormonal method. And there's tons of information about that on my website if you want to dive into those other types of FABMs. Um, but yeah, that's that's a big one. Another myth that I would love to, to chat about is the idea. So there's a, there's a big myth out there that you are capable of ovulating twice in a menstrual cycle and that your second ovulation is influenced by the phase of the moon. So this is a really big myth, which... Uh, just runs wild in um, like natural, um, like healthcare, uh, like not even naturopath. It's it's more just like uh, how do I like new age like woman's womb care that sort of thing. There's like this big myth, and I have an entire article on my website breaking that down because it's it's not true. Um, there, so I don't want to confuse everyone, but. Double ovulation, so ovulating two separate times within a single menstrual cycle is not possible because of the hormonal uh, the hormonal changes that happen. So after we ovulate, we produce progesterone and estrogen in moderate quantities, and these have a negative feedback effect on areas of our brain that are responsible for producing the hormones that trigger ovulation, so luteinizing hormone. So it's not possible for us to ovulate again once we are already in a luteal phase it, it cannot happen um but a lot of yeah a lot of people believe that you can do calculations to find out what the phase of the moon was when you were born and that every time you go through that moon phase again in your current menstrual cycle you can double ovulate so ovulate a second time and it's it's simply not the case um however there is some really cool research um into the impact of the moon on the timing of ovulation and it does appear that for some people for some of the time at some points during their life not this is not for everyone that uh the moon phase so whether it's uh, a new moon or a full moon um, or whether it is really close to the earth or really far away from the earth may actually impact the timing of ovulation. So it could perhaps bring ovulation a little bit earlier or a little bit later, but it's never going to cause you to ovulate twice. That's not biologically possible. So it's one of those things where there's actually really cool research there that we could look at, but it's getting overshadowed by these really weird myths. I have a full article on my website if you want to dive deeper into that because it's this myth called natal lunar cycles and it was first developed by um a Czech Czechoslovakia or a Czech um a psychologist or psychiatrist called Dr Eugen Jonas I'm butchering all of the pronunciations anyway you can read about that on the website but that's not um a valid theory um yeah <laughs> that's another myth <laughs> 
What about um, the idea that using these alternative methods isn't as effective as using uh, something like the pill, oral Mm. contraception? I love this. All right. Okay, buckle up because this is <laughs> this is nuanced. <laughs> it's a nuanced question with a nuanced answer. It's complex. So when we talk about contraceptive effectiveness estimates, we have to keep in mind that there are two types. There's perfect use estimates and typical use estimates. Now, when we look at perfect use for the symptothermal method, we have such reassuring data. I personally think it's it's just incredible. So um, back in 2007, there was a study published out of Germany where they followed 900 women over 17,638 menstrual cycles. And what they found was that the mm. symptothermal method was up to 99.6% effective when the method was followed accurately. So perfect use is when you follow the method rules accurately. We're, you, we're not making any mistakes. We're, we're being really diligent with our charting. And so this was a clinical trial, um, and that's what they found, a 99.6% effectiveness at pregnancy prevention, which is absolutely just mind-blowing. Now, when you compare that with the combined oral contraceptive pill, guess how effective the combined oral contraceptive pill is? With perfect use, the pill is 99.7% effective. So that is a 0.1% difference in contraceptive effectiveness when we look at perfect use of the method. So that is hugely encouraging. If you're looking into um, using the symptothermal method, it's massively encouraging. One thing to keep in mind, though, is that that's based on people who are working very closely with instructors in a clinical trial setting. So it's not necessarily transferable to the real world. Also, if you decide to self-teach the method, we don't know how effective that is because that's never been studied. So we only know that when you're working with an instructor, of the sensi plan method with those specific materials those specific books that they were using in that clinical trial setting highly effective now when we look at typical use that's where things become less clear and this is also where we start seeing some of those myths and myth- misconceptions um, pervading in this space so typical use is people out in the real world and we know that people out in the real world have lives, we're busy, we sometimes forget to do things, we're not going to be practicing things perfectly every single day, and that's okay. Um, But it's something that we have to be realistic about. Um, Now, typical use rates are less clear. So typical use rates should ideally be uh, calculated from large population-based surveys, because they're taking in a wide swathe of different demographics of people out in the real world. Now, the way that they do this is usually they have something called the US Survey of National Family Growth. And they basically, um, bear with me, there's like a weed eater outside the window. (laughs) If it gets loud, I'm just going to go and ask them to be quiet. But anyway, let me know if it gets difficult to hear me. Um, Basically, they do a survey and they, you know, they're finding out what methods of contraception people used and whether they had an unintended pregnancy. And unfortunately, there are not enough users, individual users of each type of fertility awareness based method out in the real world. Like there are so many hundreds of thousands, I'm assuming, of people who use combined oral contraceptive pills, etc. 
but there's just not that same number of people who use the symptothermal method. So what they do to get, to get around this is that they combine every person using any type of fertility awareness-based method. Now, unfortunately, under that FABM umbrella does fall the rhythm method. Now, if you have a look at the statistics, they say that um, overall, the overarching typical use effectiveness rate of people using any type of fertility awareness-based method is 85%. Now, if you look into that, the, the uh, contraceptive technology who puts that statistic together actually makes um, an effort to clarify that over 80% of respondents to that survey were using self-reported rhythm method, which means that that figure of 85% is extremely unlikely to be applicable to symptothermal method users because it's, it's largely made up of people who are counting days on a calendar. So that's really unhelpful, but it does give us like a baseline uh, figure of 85%. When we go back to that clinical trial that I mentioned earlier, that gave us that beautiful 99.6% figure, they also provided a typical use figure of 98.2%, which is again, a fantastic mm -hmm. figure. 98.2% for typical use is fantastic. However, the researchers caution that because it's as part of a clinical trial, it's likely that that result would not be applicable and generalizable to a wider population because there's so many different demographics that come into play, different situations. We're not all you know, going to meet with researchers once a week in a clinical trial, if that makes sense. So we know that perfect use, it's 99.6% effective um, uh, when learned from an instructor of that specific sensor plan method. And we know that for typical use, it's likely somewhere between 85% and 98.2%, but we don't have that data because there are not enough of us practicing this method out in the real world. And unfortunately, I think it's unlikely that we're going to get that data anytime soon because it's just not something that enough people know about. One, extremely fascinating. Like I didn't know a lot of the, yeah, the story behind um, some of that data and the statistics. So thank you for sharing that, Jesse. And two, I hope so. I hope we do. You know, I hope that uh, in the future we get more people using this and we get mm. more data. I hope yeah. so. I mean, I don't, I, I've never lost hope of that, but I do exist in such a bubble that <laughs> I, I'm, I'm wary of, of myself being like everyone's going to use the symptothermal method but I'm just in such a little bubble <laughs> that I know out in the real world there's just so many people who don't know it exists but I do hold out hope that slowly we do make progress and more and more people become aware of the benefits of allowing themselves to ovulate naturally and utilize natural birth control. Yeah, in like in your work, and I'm sure you've had hundreds, if not thousands of conversations uh, on this, is, you know, a lot of, are a lot of people, a lot of women, is it just a, a lack of education, like a gap there that they just don't know that there is another option uh, mm. besides the pill, um, oral contraception? Is that, is that what you're seeing? Is that what you've been seeing for the last yeah. seven or eight years? Yeah, massively so. Um, 
It's a combination of things. So most people who are searching for contraception are going to chat to their GP, the general practitioner here in Australia, to ask for advice. And many GPs, uh, number one, they may not know that the symptothermal method exists. So they're not going to tell people about it. Number two, they may know that it exists, but they may be under the misconception that it's the same thing as the rhythm method. And they care about their patients. They don't want to put their patients at risk of unintended pregnancy. So they're not going to recommend it. Number three, they may know that it exists. They may know that it's not the rhythm method, but they may be under the misconception that it is less effective than it really is. And this is because there's a lot of outdated uh, contraceptive effectiveness estimates that float around. Uh, number four, they may know what it is. They may know how effective it is, but they don't have the time to teach about it in that consult, which is generally around 10 to 15 minutes in Australia. We don't really have a huge amount of time in there. They don't have time to teach the symptothermal method. And because the FABM industry, it is largely unregulated. So we don't have, in many cases, governing uh, associations or bodies that instructors are a part of. Doctors, even if they want to refer their patients to learn a symptothermal method, they don't know where to turn because where can they find uh, instructors? It's, it's an unregulated field. And you have to keep in mind that there are some people out there who are teaching with no qualification. There are so many different types of symptothermal methods. There are so many different types of fertility awareness-based methods that are suitable for different times of the reproductive spectrum. So doctors are just, they're not in the best position to give guidance on this topic because it's not something that they receive a huge amount of education in. Um, and on top of that, Doctors also have to do what's right for their patients. And as I've just mentioned, we've got really good data about the fact that the symptothermal method can be highly effective with perfect use. But we have a lack, we've got a gap there in our knowledge about typical use. And doctors do need to be doing the right thing by their patients. And if they don't have that data, they're going to be reluctant to recommend the symptothermal method. And unfortunately, this is a massive catch-22 because clinical trials and studies and, and everything like that it's so expensive to implement. And we probably could try and get better typical use figures if we pulled together every symptothermal method user from around the world. But doing that costs so much money. And there is no pharmaceutical company who's interested in backing any kind of study on that because they're not going to make anything back financially on that. So it's just this big catch-22 situation where people start, people need to in many ways, kind of go underground to find information because it's just not making it through the official channels. And I would love to see that change in future. So I know over in the United Kingdom, they can actually get fertility awareness um, instruction through the NHS in some areas, um, which is amazing. I would love mm. to see that happen here in Australia. I know over in the US, there are actually a couple of... Um, like OBGYN offices that offer instruction in certain types of fertility awareness-based methods. So there are some small inroads being made, but it is still very difficult for people to find this information through their official sources, their GPs, their, you know, the gynecologists, that sort of thing. Yeah. From what you're just talking about, Jesse, like I can imagine like 
there just seems to be a lot of barriers. So one, lack of awareness and education, and then also a lot of barriers. So the easier way, the easier option is to go to something that has been around for a long time, doesn't require a lot of energy effort um, to to learn about. And I can see why mm. people like, you know, like you said before, we live like we live busy, big lives. A lot of us mm. are very stressed. A lot of us are very disconnected from our body. So this idea of doing something that's it, it's a lot. Yeah, you have to do a lot of reading and research and learning and listening, and you have to be patient and all of these things. I can see why. Yeah, the mind goes to no. It's just easier for me. Just to, I just got to take a pill. Um, absolutely absolutely and and I totally get that because it is overwhelming and usually there's like a three month or three menstrual cycle learning curve while you're learning the method and it's a lot like it's a lot of information to take in especially if you're starting from scratch if you've got no idea about the menstrual cycle your mind is about to get blown but it's hard work like you've got to put in a lot of hard work and I, I like to counter that by saying, yes, it's like three months of like intense hard work and huge mindset shifts. But once you've got that knowledge, nobody can take that away from you. Even if you decide, you know what, it's actually too much work for me and I want to go back on hormonal contraception or I want to, to have an IUD, you've still forever got that body literacy and that knowledge of how your body works. And that in itself is so empowering. And that's what I like to tell people is that it's worth it just to walk away knowing yourself better. Yeah, I love I love that so much, Jesse. And I, I agree. I agree that this is like getting to know yourself and your body it's not an easy thing, but it is the most powerful, important thing you will do in your life because it's your mm. body. And I, I talk about this, obviously, from a training perspective of like, it takes a really long time to build a proper foundation to learn about your body and how to train in a particular way. It takes a long time to learn about your physiology, how to nourish your body. It's the same with this. It mm. takes a while to learn about your menstrual cycle and your fertility it takes a while to learn something like this but once you know how to do it like the understanding that you have of your body the empowerment the possibility the freedom it just it opens up all of that and I just it, mm. I'll, I'll always come back to why are we trying to make our health convenient <laughs> Why are we trying to make our training convenient? Why are we trying to make our fertility convenient, our hormones convenient? We have to stop doing that. We have to actually like learn about our body and take the long way and do the, this is my belief anyway, to do, we have to do these types of things to build the connection, to build the trust, to build the understanding. And we just have to stop taking the convenient way when it comes to our health and our fertility. I could not agree more. I could not agree more. And we don't live in a society that makes that easy to do for people. We live in, yeah, we just, we live in a time where everyone wants a quick fix and 
and we're also living in in a society where our our lifestyle the expectations placed on us by the lifestyles we are living in don't necessarily align with what's best for our biology so we're living in these lives where we're expected to wake up every single day go to work from you know 8 30 to 5 30 every day when you and i both know that as women and as people who are menstruating that is just not in alignment with how our natural rhythms and the natural flow of our energy goes it's just so it's in opposition to what is best for us and i look forward to a day where workplaces and life in general in the western world at least can be much more in alignment and respectful of what our bodies are telling us they need because it's just not it's just it's it's awful it's it's the the things that people are expected to to do when their bodies are screaming i need a break it's just not good yeah and it's you know when we do something that blocks that connection it's really hard for us to truly know our body to truly understand mm. it. Um, and so, yeah, maybe if we're like eating in a certain way or training in a particular way or taking something like oral contraception, that's blocking a natural connection to your body that I don't know why we just push back against that so much, but we've got to allow, we've got to do things that allow that natural connection. And then, yes, of course, it's your choice to, to what, how you want to eat or how you want to train or how you want to, you know, manage your fertility or your hormones. But for, for me, I just think, why would we not want to do things that create a stronger connection and more understanding of our own body? Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. I, I'm the same. Yeah, I'd love to, um, I'd want to touch on a couple more things. One around this idea of there's no such thing as a late period and why some women actually don't have this idea of like this perfect textbook cycle. Mm. Yeah. So <laughs> this is every fam instructor's favorite saying, <laughs> there's no such thing as a late period only a late ovulation unless you're pregnant um and yeah let, let's chat about this so if you are just counting days on a calendar and you expect your period to arrive say every 30 days and one 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 menstrual cycle it's it's you know it's 35 days and you're like my period's late like where is my period gone what is going on your period is probably not late so what we what we need to go back to is that your period is a flow on effect from ovulation so your period is a result of ovulation your period doesn't happen unless you've ovulated you can have other types of bleeding that's another combo we won't go there but basically once you ovulate you have this corpus luteum in your ovaries that's producing progesterone and your corpus luteum has a fixed lifespan of approximately two weeks now after that two weeks is up that corpus luteum is dying it's it's disintegrating it's uh being reabsorbed back into the body your progesterone levels drop and progesterone was stabilizing the lining of your uterus so once that corpus luteum dies the progesterone levels drop um your period starts to come on and you start to experience a bleed but basically that uh, time frame between ovulation and your next period it's a fixed 
time frame. It's, it's always going to be approximately two weeks. Obviously, for some people, it's a little bit different. So usually like anywhere between about 10 to 16 days is the, like the normal range. But basically, if you've got a late period, it's not because that luteal phase was extended. That's not it. It's because you ovulated later than you normally do in your menstrual cycle. So your follicular phase, which is the time up until ovulation, that can be extended for weeks and months, depending on what's going on in your life. But once you ovulate, your period always arrives approximately two weeks later, unless you're pregnant. So there's no such thing as a late period. There's only a late ovulation or what we, we, we call it a delayed ovulation, just delayed beyond whatever is like your normal. Um, mm. And when we talk about textbook cycles, oh, there's just such, there's this idea out there that everyone has a 28-day menstrual cycle and everyone ovulates on day 14. <laughs> and it couldn't be further from the truth. It just, <laughs> it really couldn't be further from the truth. So when we when we actually look at, look into that a little bit deeper there are so many things that can affect that and and to start with anywhere from about 24 to 38 days is usually considered a normal length of the menstrual cycle so to, to start with you might just have a naturally shorter or naturally longer menstrual cycle and that might just be your normal so not everyone has this 28 day menstrual cycle but when we talk about things um, that push out the length of that menstrual cycle. We're talking about things that might impact the timing of ovulation. And honestly, the list is is endless. So um, it, even, for instance, as we get older and we're heading closer to perimenopause territory, we often start to see ovulation coming a little bit earlier, which can shorten the length of our cycles. Um, now, when we are experiencing, say, stress, maybe we are overtraining or under eating maybe we're traveling and stressed um maybe there's something exciting like a wedding happening but you've still got a bit of stress about that in the body um what can happen is that the body can push out and delay ovulation and that's it's it's such a, a beautiful big subject but at, at a very basic level our our reproduction is not essential to our own survival. So when our body is stressed, reproduction is the first thing that's kind of falling off the bandwagon. And our body says, look, we're just going to put this to the side until it's a better time when we've got cortisol racing through the body and, and our <laughs> primitive brain is like, we're running from a saber-toothed tiger. Now's not the time to pop out an egg. We'll just we'll delay that for a week until, until whatever is stressing us out has ended. And then also you've got uh, other things that can impact the timing of, ov of ovulation. So uh, perhaps people have polycystic ovarian syndrome or perhaps they're kind of on that spectrum of, of hypothalamic amenorrhea. There's so many different things that can impact the timing of ovulation. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, not everyone is going to see this perfect 28-day cycle. But if you are consistently seeing really delayed ovulation, you've got really long cycles, then definitely look into that because there's so much that can impact and improve the health of our menstrual cycle. Um, and it's not something that we just have to put up with. Um, oftentimes, there's a lot that we can do. And I know I'm sure you talk about this all the time with your clients, Amy. But yeah, there's a lot we can do to improve those uh, cycle health parameters. 
Yeah, I love I love how you um, frame that, Jesse. I talk about it a lot when it comes to like our recovery. You know how we respond to training. It's not going to be the same. <laughs> uh, and we, you know, the body really is the boss, and so we can mm-hmm. nourish I love it. That. I just to have it. to say, I love that saying. The body is the oh, you need to trademark that. Put that on a t-shirt. I'll buy it. It is. The body is the boss. And I think so much friction gets created uh, for so many people, so many women, it's because they're trying to control their body. Like I want to control it and it has to respond this way and do this thing. And when it doesn't, like I don't like you, I hate you, it's annoying, it's frustrating. But that in itself creates so much stress and Mm. it leaks so much energy when we can surrender to like, your body is the boss. Yes, of course. Your your mind or you are in control of your behaviors. We want to sleep. We want to nourish. You know, we want to do these things. But in the end, the body is the boss. And it's our role to, like, respond to it. Listen, <laughs> allow, receive, and respond. And so in the training space, I talk about this to my women all the time of, like, of course, show up show up to your training and you want to try the best that you can, but the body's going to be the boss in the end. And it's your role to respond to that. And this is the whole idea of getting really confident in modifying and adapting what we're doing to respond to the body. And it's the same with the menstrual cycle. If we have this idea of like, it's got to be this long and I can't get any symptoms. Now, of course, if we have a massive symptom profile, that again is in itself saying that there's something potentially going on with the body. But every now and then we're going to have different cycles. Things are going to come up. We, and I think if we, yeah, it's just, I like how you put it because I totally agree. It's that we've just got to let this. Yeah, I love how you've put it. Yeah. Let it go. Let this idea of like how it should be. Now, of course, like you said, we're looking for ranges. We've got like kind of principles. We've got this rough structural skeleton that we can have as an idea of, yes, okay, this is like a healthy functioning, you know, body. And if we're outside of that, yeah, we need to look at stuff. But on the whole, it's really our job to listen to to her a lot better I think so <laughs> I could not love that more I just think that's such a beautiful approach and I yeah I just love that not always easy there's still some days when I'm like damn you body just do what I want you to do or damn you body I wish you had more energy or lift heavier body like I <laughs> but I think you know, being in this space and, and listening to her for so long now that there's definitely a respect and a humility that I bring to it, being like, eh, yeah, it's a little annoying, but yeah, I'll listen to you. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> the wisdom, wisdom of the body. That's just, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Last two things. One controversial, two about your work. Uh, the controversial one is what are your thoughts about the new over-the-counter pill? Mm. Is like a plane going over me? I'm just yeah. wait. <laughs> yeah, there is. <laughs> uh, okay, so 
So my thoughts on that. So I'm in Australia. So it's not something that has dominated the headlines over here as much as it has for you guys over there, I'm assuming. Um, I, I mean, I'm of the opinion that the more choice women and people who menstruate have about their contraceptive choices, their options, the better. I mean, I I envision a world in, in which women and people who menstruate know what they want to choose from. They know what their options are and they can make an informed decision about what's really going to serve them best in their season of life, the lifestyle they're in, whatever's going on for them. And it's just so different for everyone. And I know that especially over in the U.S., there's like you know there's I feel as though just I could be wrong but this is what I see from my perspective from here in Australia is that there's quite a push from some uh, aspects of society to reduce um, access to birth control, which to me is concerning because um, you know the impacts of unintended pregnancy are massive and and women and people who menstruate deserve to have safe access to prevent pregnancy. So I think it's good that there's more options available available for people. Um, I, I do sometimes feel concerned when something is over the counter. You know, I know pharmacists are going to be trained to, you know, comprehensively go through side effects and all that sort of thing. But I know that already as it is, when you go to your GP or your gynecologist, people are sometimes not getting full disclosure about the full range of side effects that they may come across with um, their chosen form of hormonal contraception. So if they're not getting that in their doctor's office, are they going to be getting that to an even lesser degree um, in the pharmacy? That's something that definitely concerns me. Um, but look, at the end of the day, it's something else that's available for people. I mean, I, having been on hormonal contraception, it's not something that I ever want to go back to. Um, I know now the absolute enormous benefits of allowing my body to ovulate. And I know the benefits of exposure to my own endogenous sex hormones, so estrogen and progesterone. And giving up that monthly exposure to those hormones and the huge benefits, um, full body uh, health benefits. That's not something I would really ever want to go back to. Um, and in saying that, even if I did decide to go back to hormonal contraception, I probably wouldn't want to go to a progestin-only pill. So the O pill is a progestin-only pill. Um, often they have worse like side effect profiles for things like irregular bleeding and spotting. Um, and we, we know that the main mechanism of action of those pills is actually thickening the cervical mucus to prevent sperm from getting into the uterus. But because that action is short-lived, you have to take the pill every single day within about one to three hours the same time, every single day. There's no break. You don't ever stop taking that pill. You have to keep mm. taking it for it to be effective. And yeah, I just, for me, that's not something that appeals to me. I mean, if for people who are breastfeeding, that sort of thing, it, it can be more suitable, but if I had to go back to hormonal contraception, it definitely would not be to the O-pill, that's for sure. Um, but, yeah, look, I am not a huge fan of hormonal contraception for myself personally. Knowing what I know about my body, how it uh, reacts to hormones, knowing about the benefits of my own sex hormones, which we only really produce in adequate quantities when we ovulate, it's just not something that 
I would want to go back to. So I can only speak for myself and say that I that seeing those headlines does nothing for me. Like I'm not excited to see that. I would love to see pharmacists being able to to prescribe, look, you need to go and take a course or read this book or hit, you know, natural options do exist. That's my that's my dream. I would love to see that. So yeah, that's probably about all I would have to say about the opil. I like the packaging though. They've got a very attractive pill packaging. It's like the the marketers know what they're doing to get people mm. to feel like this is a safe, nice, pastely product when really it's like going to wreak havoc with your hormones. But anyway. <laughs> I haven't seen the packaging actually. Um, but I can imagine, it's really- yes, it's probably it it's probably looks nice. Tones, lovely pastel tones, beautiful, safe looking package. And and who who would know? Like, look, this this little pill is actually increasing my risks of breast cancer and blood clots and depression and all these other things that you really don't want to be putting up with because life is hard enough as it is anyway. Yeah. Um, no, it was beautifully expressed and articulated, Jesse, that I think that well, education is kind of what I got from that is we just we really want women to be educated, people to be educated mm-hmm. about all options, all possibilities, know all possibilities, get educated. And I think we just can't rely on other people like to give us that information. We've got to go searching for it ourselves. Um, and so we've got to search, find people that are in the spaces that can help education educate us so we can yeah uh education is probably what I got out from from that and then uh yeah just I think knowing that there is other possibilities or other options um is yeah is empowering last thing last thing your work (laughs) your resources your courses where do people learn more from you work with you find you so the best thing you can do if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking that the symptothermal method sounds interesting, perhaps it could be a good fit for you, um, I recommend visiting my website. So it's fertilitycharting.com.au. Um, it is packed with free resources. So the best place to start, I've actually got a free e-course. It's the symptothermal method mini e-course. Um, basically, everything we've talked about here. You can go through video modules where I explain that in a, like it's laid out really nicely. It it makes sense. We talk about the phases of the menstrual cycle, cervical mucus, basal body temperatures, contraceptive effectiveness, all that sort of thing that you want to make sure that you're clear on before you decide whether something is right for you or wrong for you. It's just the best resource. So that's what I recommend to everyone who's curious. Just take the free e-course go through the video modules and see whether it's something that's, you know, suitable for you. Um, if you are interested in the symptothermal method, I have so many free resources. I have a cervical mucus gallery, so you can go and look at real pictures of what cervical mucus looks like. I've got recommended BBT thermometers because there's so many options out there. Um, I have a course handbook, so if you're just wanting to read the rules and teach yourself. I've got a guide for self-teaching, course handbook that you can read and learn about. Um, There's an instructor directory. I've also got multiple different course options if you actually want to work with me um, and and go through, if you know, charting for conception or contraception. 
this a huge range of courses that you can browse as well. So I hope that I've got something for everyone. And if not, I actually have links out to other instructors um, who provide other services too. So there's a, a huge range of options there on the website, and that's fertilitycharting.com.au. Jesse, thank you so much for your time today, for your energy, for your work, for your passion, for your knowledge. I deeply appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, Amy. I just, I appreciate being able to chat about these things that are so important to me with other people who recognize their importance and are so enthusiastic about them too. It's just good for the soul. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, it was a pleasure. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Warrior Woman, thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you haven't, please give the podcast some love by subscribing now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate it and share it with another Warrior Woman. Also, if you want to go crazy, I'd love if you wrote a review for the Warrior School podcast. And also share and tag me with your biggest takeaways for the episode on the gram. Okay, Warrior Woman, have a great week in training. Bye for now.